Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi folks, this episode of the Irish History Podcast is a little different from other shows. In this episode, entitled The Black Death, Black Lung and the Great Famine, you will be hearing an update on where my upcoming book on the Black Death is at. This will take us into the fascinating siege of Calais in 1347. The episode also has other bits and pieces of research I've come across recently, from the strange world of coal mining in the 19th century, all the way through to the Great Famine of the 1840s. As always, I am eager to hear your views. Sometimes I can't respond to all the messages I receive, but I do read everything and take on board all your suggestions. If you want to contact me about anything I mention in the show, let me know at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. So first things first, to that siege of Calais in 1347. Just before I get into the intricacies of the siege, I just want to briefly recap for those of you who don't know, I'm currently writing a book about the Black Death in Ireland. The funding for this book came mainly from listeners like yourselves, for which I am eternally grateful. It was research for this book that led me to the siege, probably one of the most fascinating events I have ever written about. However, this will not be in the final draft of the book. Why will be revealed later, but first to the siege. The siege of Calais took place in the winter of 1346 through to the late summer of 1347. If this event had taken place in the modern world, we would perhaps look at it in the way that we look at the Battle of Stalingrad or the invasion of Normandy. It was not only a key battle, but the stuff of legend. Indeed, an event like this is every historian's dream. It practically writes itself. If you're writing a book, you want this somehow to fit in. Now, it was a crucial battle in a conflict known as the 100 Years' War. That was a war between successive kings of England and France that lasted 116 years, but evidently no one was counting. Now, the King of England at the start of the war was a man called Edward III. In order to conduct successful campaigns in France, Edward needed a port close to England, and the walled town of Calais was ideal. It was positioned directly opposite England on the north coast of France and it was sizable enough with a population of around 8,000 
which would have made it slightly smaller than Dublin at the time, but nevertheless sizable by contemporary standards. After a summer of successful battles in 1346 in mainland France, including a great victory at Cressy, Edward III began to direct his forces toward the port of Calais that September. Now this was a risky strategy. Embarking on a siege that would drag on into the winter went against all military convention. The last thing a medieval battle commander wanted was an army camped out in front of a highly fortified town like Calais. Inside, the enemy would suffer little, as they were warm and dry, but the attacking force would freeze in the harsh winter conditions outside. If your enemy didn't kill you off first, sickness and disease would make short work of any army. Nevertheless, Edward III pushed ahead in late 1346, and he began to make it clear he was in for the long haul. Inside the walls, he faced several thousand inhabitants who wouldn't surrender easily, while further south, the King of France, Philippe VI, was gathering his forces to try and relieve the siege. But Edward knew he couldn't win such a great prize as Calais easily, and this resistance didn't deter him. Through the autumn and winter, he began to prepare for a prolonged siege. Defensive lines to protect his army from attack were constructed and, over time, in one of the most amazing feats of the age, Edward built an entire wooden town outside the walls of Calais for his army. This even had its own marketplace. Over the year of the siege, from July 1346 through to August 1347, a gargantuan effort by an English fleet of over 850 ships, worked by nearly 30,000 sailors, ferried food and supplies into Edward's army outside Calais. By 1347, large numbers of soldiers began to arrive and the siege proper started. Not only was Calais strangled on the landward side, but the English fleet now blockaded the port as well. The population of Calais were going to be starved out. This blockade created desperate conditions in the town. With each passing day, the defenders had less food and fresh water. Something had to be done, and in early 1347, they took the hard decision to expel what were known as the useless mouths from the town. These were basically people who could not fight the old, the infirmed and the young, and from a purely militaristic point of view, feeding them was pointless. So it must have been a pretty funereal atmosphere when the gates of the town opened and this miserable parade of the old, the young and the infirmed came forth. What happened at this point varies depending on what account you believe. According to some chroniclers, Edward III fed these poor people. However, those sources more hostile to the king claimed that he would not allow the citizens of Calais through his siege lines. This version of events says that they were not allowed back into Calais either, and there between the walls of their own town and Edward III's siege lines they starved to death. Even with the sounds of their dying neighbours outside the walls, the remaining defenders of Calais would not give up. They tenaciously awaited relief from their king Philippe VI. However, Philippe had been defeated by Edward at the Battle of Cressy in the summer of 1346 and he was reticent to take the field against English armies in open battle again. As hope of relief faded and the conditions in Calais just went from bad to worse, defeat now stared the defenders in the face. Eventually, on August the 26th, in a scene as iconic as the famous Russian soldiers 
hoisting the hammer and sickle over the Reichstag in 1945, the gates of the beleaguered Calais swung open and six leading citizens emerged to surrender. They were dressed in nothing but undergarments and around their necks each wore a noose. They carried with them the keys to the city of Calais. This act symbolised that not only were they surrendering their town, but that they recognised that their lives were now forfeit and in the hands of the victor, King Edward. Edward III was an effective but violent and vengeful king, and he wanted to execute them there and then, but they were spared on the pleas of his wife, Queen Philippa. After this, the entire population of Calais were expelled, beginning a rule of English monarchs over the town that would last until 1588. This drew to a close the longest and one of the biggest military engagements in northwestern Europe in the 14th century. Now I think you can all agree that this is a pretty fascinating story, but you might be wondering what has this got to do with my upcoming book on the Black Death in Ireland? Well as you can see the siege is an intriguing story and I thought it would be an ideal way to frame the lead up to the outbreak of the plague. It seemed ideal. Just as the siege ended, the plague broke out at the opposite end of Europe and started its inexorable march northwestwards before it reached Ireland in 1348. It also fitted into my original plan for the book. The structure of my book is somewhat unusual in that each chapter in this history is a biographical account of an individual who lived through the events. One of the individuals in the original lineup was a knight called Fouque de la Frayne. In 1347, Delafrain was actually at Calais and witnessed these remarkable scenes as the townsmen emerged with the nooses around their necks. It seemed perfect, surely. Well, not quite. So sometimes when you're writing, it's easy to get carried away and through the month of March, I worked and I reworked the chapters on Fouque Delafrain, which was increasingly becoming a chapter about the siege of Calais. However, each time I just couldn't make it fit with the rest of the book, which in retrospect is not that surprising given it's a book about the Black Death in Ireland. Anyway, a few months ago, I took a break from the writing and returned to it about two weeks later, and the solution was staring me in the face. Not only was the Siege of Calais not really part of the story, but also Fouque de la Frayne was not even a useful person for me to relay the history of the Black Death. Essentially, I think I was just including him to tell the story of the siege. It was definitely with a heavy heart that I edited out the Siege of Calais and now that chapter won't make the final cut. It is infuriating. I had worked my way through muddy army camps and siege lines but ultimately it is another history that's not useful to me right now. Hopefully through this I can get across some of the complexities I have faced writing this book. Even when it's history and the avenues and options are limited you still face multiple choices of what road to take in research. The hardest is often deciding what roads not to take. When you see an avenue that leads to an event like the Siege of Calais, you can't help but wonder what lies down that road. It does take me lots of interesting places, but often it can be a long process where you find yourself somewhat lost. This has delayed the writing process, but it is a crucial part of it. Finally now, I have emerged on the other side and the book is nearing completion. The final lineup of people whose lives will unveil the history of the Black Death in Ireland are Richard Ledred, the Bishop of Austria between 1317 and 1360, one of the oldest men of the Middle Ages when he died. He was a notorious prosecutor of the witch trials in Kilkenny in 1324. Next is Walter de la Poole, a one-time rebel and outlaw who was returned to favour by fighting for Edward II in Scotland. A favourite character of mine is James Butler, the second Earl of Ormond. 
his life was transformed by the plague. Then there is John Clinn, who I covered in a previous update about where the book was at. Some of you who heard these previous updates may remember that I was struggling to find enough information to include women in the history. I'm glad to say now that there are actually two. These are Joanna Stakelpool, the daughter of a wealthy Dublin merchant, and Alice Drog, a somewhat more shadowy but intriguing figure. So at the moment, I'm still writing, but as I've said, it's very close to completion. I hope to finish in mid to late October, and the audio version will be released about a month later. It will be available through my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie. Before I move on to the next section of the show, I would just say that that website, irishhistorypodcast.ie, is currently getting overhauled at the moment. The current website is a bit of a nightmare to navigate through, but the new site is much simpler. You will be able to find all the podcasts there broken down by category. Likewise, all the articles and photo galleries are broken down by category as well. This makes it much easier to move through. The new website will also have a decent system where I can upload audiobooks. So my first book, Witches, Spies and Stockholm Syndrome, Life in Medieval Ireland, is ready to go. When the new site is up, you'll be able to either buy the entire book in one go or you will have the option to buy individual chapters. But I'll let you know when the site is live online. Now to move on. The title of today's show is The Black Death, Black Lung and Famine. So next I'm going to move on to the somewhat enigmatically titled section, Black Lung. Black Lung might sound like a strange title for a podcast. It's not a black metal band or some horrific medieval disease. Instead, it was actually something that was common enough in the town where I grew up and it's intertwined with a fascinating and forgotten chapter in Irish history. I grew up in Castlecomer in North Kilkenny. Today, it's a relatively small provincial town. I guess like many towns in Ireland, it's struggling a bit to find its place in the 21st century. However, the town has one of the most unique and enthralling histories that you can imagine. Castlecomer was one of the few mining towns in Ireland. Until the late 1960s, coal mining was the lifeblood of the town, but it was also one of the great killers in the town too. Even in the 20th century, miners worked in appalling conditions. Indeed, young teenagers even worked in the mines right up to the 1960s as well. Someone I know, for example, told me recently that his father made his communion a religious rite Catholics undergo in their very early teens and also received his union card for the mines in the same year. Accidents were all too frequent. Indeed, I remember in the 1980s there was lots of people around the town who carried the marks of a life in the mines. Old men wheezing with pneumonicosis. That is the black lung mentioned in the title. A disease where coal dust gets inside the lungs and can't be removed, while others had lost fingers in accidents. This, however, happened during the best days of the mines. After a 200-year struggle, the miners had won huge concessions from the mining company. For example, in the 1830s, well before this, obviously, a visitor to the coalfield noted how the miners were pale in complexion from lives spent underground. Alcoholism was unusually high and life expectancy low. The historian William Nolan has argued that alcoholism was the only means of enlivening a short and squalid existence replete with sickness and hardship. In the coming weeks, I'm taking a break from the podcast series I've been making on the Norman invasion to cover the incredible struggle the miners waged against the mining company and the local landlords for what was their right to survive. This wasn't an easy or at times even pleasant fight. Murder and violence was common enough, 
but it's a remarkable story of what was often undying solidarity within a poor community attacked on all sides. The church at one time branded their leaders as having the mark of the devil, while the local landlord was more often than not unyielding to their demands. This was also the world of stately mansions where landlords lived in opulence, side by side with those who lived in abject poverty. So my upcoming series on Castle Comer will not only take you inside the reality of life in the mines, but also inside life in these stately mansions, something that's often sanitised in series like Downton Abbey. I'll just give you one anecdote to try and relay what I'm talking about. In shows like Downton Abbey, you often see the staff that work in these big houses chatting to the family who own them in a friendly, casual manner. This is a complete distortion of the reality of this world. Indeed, it was standard practice for servants to do something called giving way. This meant that at all times they needed to make themselves as invisible as possible. So if they encountered a member of the family who owned the house, it was customary to face the wall and cast their eyes to the floor. This, along with the fascinating story of how the miners in Castlecomer fought for their rights, is all ahead of us in this mini-series of four podcasts, which begins next Monday and will be released every two weeks after that. If you want to make sure that you get the series, just subscribe to my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie, or subscribe to the show in iTunes. Having now worked our way through the Black Death and Black Lung, I am turning now to the final part of today's show, The Great Famine. Come early next year, I'll have completed my book on the Black Death, and will also have completed the series on the Norman Invasion, which has been going on for about a year. The question arises then where to take the podcast and the overall project after that. I've decided that I'm going to make an extensive podcast series on the Great Famine, unquestionably the most profound and disturbing event in Irish history. It's a foundation for so many people, not just in Ireland, but across the globe. Most Irish communities from Australia to America owe their origins to events during the Great Famine. Indeed, in Ireland, it's an event that has shaped so many communities and can still be seen in the landscape today. For example, Castlecomer, that town I grew up in, which will be the focus of the upcoming series, was incredibly scarred by it. Today, on a hill overlooking the town, lies the workhouse, now a hospital, built just after the famine, a Victorian response to the horrors of the preceding years. A few miles to the east of Castlecomer lies the townland of Monine Row. Its population fell by over 50% during the decade between 1841 and 1851. The famine as a topic is far from straightforward. For example, the population drop in Monine Row was not because of starvation, but largely due to the local landlord's policy of assisted emigration, where he paid for one-way tickets to North America. This, however, was deeply controversial. He didn't do this out of the goodness of his heart, but instead was using it as a way to restructure his estate without resistance. The resentment from this, obviously, in some areas, lasted decades. To tell the story of the famine is not easy. It can be a source of controversy. Indeed, I am sure some of you will have issues with the fact that I have used the term famine. Many prefer to call it a genocide. But these are all aspects through which I hope to explore the incredible events that happened in Ireland between 1845 and 1852. To have any hope of doing justice to such an important topic, I will be aiming to devote all my time to this series and produce about 30 to 40 shows over the course of just one year. 
Currently, I'm doing research into what it will cost and planning out the core idea of the series. My long-term aim in this regard would be to produce a history of the Great Famine that would be available in an easily accessible format online. This hopefully would be an interesting way for all ages to engage and understand why Irish communities, not only in Ireland but across the world, are the way they are today. At the moment, I'm just flagging the idea. There will be a lot more on this in due course. Now, I know this is a topic that many of you have a strong and heartfelt opinions about. So if you have any ideas about what way I should take this or approach it, please let me know. That address is history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. That's history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. I hope you've enjoyed this show. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, which are probably a little less formal and cover various topics in just one episode, let me know. Again, that email address is history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. I'll be back next Monday with the first instalment of that series on the mining community's struggle in Castlecomer. Until then, Sloan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 